So we have been in we have been in um, <clears throat> a section of the uh, Bible doctrine book called the Doctrine of the Church. And then, uh, so we've talked about the nature of the church. Last week we talked about baptism, and tonight we'll turn our attention to the Lord's Supper. And as we think about the Lord's Supper, we'll answer or we'll try to answer two key questions. <clears throat> the first of which is, what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper? And the second is, how should it be observed? <clears throat> and as we were talking about baptism last week, uh, one of the things we talked about is, is that it's symbolic. It's a picture of a person who, who comes in, uh, in in their old life, they're, they're buried with Christ and raised to walk in, in a new life. And it's something that a believer participates in. This is, this is uh, someone who's placed their, their trust in Christ does to demonstrate what's, what's happened. So it's an outward picture of something that's happened on the inside, baptism. And baptism for a believer is only needed once, happens once in, in a believer's life. Now you may know somebody who's been baptized twice. I'm actually married to somebody who's baptized twice. Kyle's been baptized twice. I suspect Kyle would have a story similar to, to Diane's, maybe. Um, and, and the reason is Diane, she walked an aisle when she was a young child. She thought she knew that she ought to do something. She had seen other people do it, and it seemed like that was expected. And so she went forward after a service one day, and, and they kind of whisked her through the process, and she was baptized. And, and it was later in life that she realized she had not truly made a decision to follow Christ, to trust in him and his death on her behalf for her salvation. And when she did have come to that realization, when she came to that understanding, she wanted to be scripturally baptized as a believer. So I assume you have a similar story. So it, it's, it's not unheard of for people to be baptized, but it, it only needs to occur once to be a, 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 a scriptural baptism. Uh, unlike baptism, the Lord's Supper is observed over and over again in a believer's life. Um, it's an it's a ongoing um, observance. <clears throat> I thought as we, um, just to start off the lesson tonight, it would be good to kind of read the, the scriptural references, the scriptural passages that speak about the Lord's Supper. Um, so who had Matthew 26, 26 through 30? and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when he had and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay. So that's Matthew's recording of the Lord's Supper. How about Mark 14, 22 through 26? And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, 
blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Okay. Seven well, more verse. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay. So that's Matthew and Mark's recording. How about Luke twenty-two fourteen through 20? And when the hour was come, he sat down and twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, The desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took the bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Okay. How about the Gospel of John? I didn't realize this. The Gospel of John doesn't really record. It records the Last Supper, starting in chapter 13. And Jesus is in the, in the upper room with his disciples, but it doesn't record doesn't tell the story of, of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. But there is in 1 Corinthians. Who's had 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26? I have one. Okay. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay. So we can see this is an important thing. It's, it's recorded in, in uh, various places throughout the Bible. And, um, and so the question is, is there an Old Testament uh, is there some background to this ceremony in the Old Testament? And uh, Grudem gives us a couple of examples uh, in Exodus, just after the uh, after Moses had received the Ten Commandments. Um, there's a there's a an example of of eating and drinking in the presence of God. Who had Exodus twenty four nine through eleven? And Moses and Aaron, Nahab and and seven of the elders. Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel that was under his feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven of Sardis. And he did not lay his hands on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Okay, so they were eating and drinking in God's presence. Now, the, the background for this is that, as I said, they had read, received the Ten Commandments, and Moses is outlining to the people what God had said. He's telling them what God had said. And the people responded by saying that we would obey. We would do what the Lord has commanded. And so Moses 
uh, killed an animal and he took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people just before this happened. So we can see closely associated with this, this um, instance of eating and drinking in the presence of God, this close association with sacrifice and blood. Okay. Uh, the second example that we have is from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 14, 23 through 26. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flocks, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. If the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe at the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name, is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you. Then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord God and rejoice you and your household. Okay. So as Moses is restating the law, the, the, the Israelites are getting ready to go into the promised land, and uh, he's giving them, he's restating the law, reminding them of what God had said. And God says uh, in verse 22, you shall surely tithe all of the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field. And then closely after that, um, he institutes this uh, that James read in verse 23. He says, you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses. So there's this commandment to, to eat and drink in the Lord's presence. And it's, it's associated with remembering and, and fear or reverence. Okay, So this is, this is the association, remembering and fear and reverence. Of course, we know that Adam and Eve, uh, they were in the garden. And, and it's interesting that the thing they were commanded to do or not to do had, had to do with eating. They were, they were told they could eat of any of the trees in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. And um, so, of course, every meal that they, they took was in the presence. They were in, in complete and full fellowship with God. So all of the meals in, in which they participated in uh, were in God's presence. And then, of course, they sinned, and, then, and, and sin caused a separation to occur. They were separated from God. And yet God continued to allow or command some of these, these eating and drinking in his presence that we read about. Now all of these Old Testament occurrences kind of pointed to how sin had yet to be taken care of, right? There's, there's, there's this association with a sacrifice that, that is ongoing. It's, it's this continual sacrifice. And yet the, our observance of the Lord's Supper does kind of the opposite, right? It... it points us to the fact that sin has once and for all been taken care of. It, it's been paid for completely, and, and the payment is fully accomplished. Um, in fact, uh, in Matthew 26, 29, Jesus said, I tell you, I shall not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. We, we heard that, that verse a moment ago. So it, it points us to this, this time when we will... Um, Again, once again, eat in the presence of God in, in complete and full fellowship. Who had Revelation 19, 19, 7 through 9? Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, 
and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, is given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Okay, so this is pointing to some, this future great, great banquet that we, that we will be a part of as being in God's kingdom. It speaks to this time when, when the relationship between man and God will be restored. Now, as the elders met and we talked about, as, as we were working through our, our vision and, our, and our, our purpose, one of the things that we rested upon was spiritual restoration for individuals, families, communities, and nations. And we do that by knowing, worshiping, and sharing God. But that, that key word, restoration, and, and we see that as a future promise um, at a time when we will celebrate that, that future great feast in the presence of the Lord. Now the meaning of the Lord's Supper is, is rich and full and I hope tonight, you know, the tendency that we fall into is it, it just becomes something we do. It's just something we do and, and we, we don't put a whole lot of thought into it. So I hope tonight as we talk about this you'll, you'll start to see again some of the, the, the richness and the fullness of the meaning behind what we do. And then the next time we, we participate in the Lord's Supper you can reflect back on these things. So, the first thing that we would say about the Lord's Supper is that it's symbolic. And what do we mean by symbolic? How would you define, what is, what is a symbol? What does symbolic mean? So I'm saying, what is a symbol in general? Generally, what's a symbol? Represents. It's something that represents the real thing, right? Right. Okay. The real, real thing is typically greater than the symbol. That's a good point. The symbol is not the real thing. It's not as important or big or, or significant. That's, that's correct. Well, the Lord's Supper symbolizes and affirms several things. And the first thing that it symbolizes or, or affirms is Christ's death. Okay. I mean, the whole, the whole point of the Lord's Supper as we participate in it, we're thinking about the fact that, that Christ died. His body was given for us. And think and, and remember, uh, Jesus was, was beaten, he was whipped, he was spit upon. He wore a crown of thorns. His body was, was bruised. It was, it was abused. His body suffered. Um, and then we, we participate in the cup. The, the juice represents his blood, which was poured out. As, uh, uh, near the end of the crucifixion, when he was pierced in his side and the, and the bodily fluids and the blood would have just flowed, flowed, flowed forth, um, we certainly recognize that what we're thinking about or, or what's happening here is is symbolic of Jesus' death. The, the next thing that the Lord's Supper symbolizes or affirms is our participation. Okay. So there's a sense in which as we reach out to take the elements, we're participating in the Lord's Supper. We're symbolically saying... 
we're participating in Christ's death. We are united with him in his death, much like the, the picture of, of baptism where we are buried to our sins and raised to, new walk, to walk in new, newness of life. We are saying in the Lord's Supper, we're participating. Jesus was our substitute. He died the death that we should have died. And I think back to one of the most beautiful stories in, in all of the Bible to me is the story of Abraham and Isaac and how God commanded Abraham to take his, his only son, his, his, his beloved son, and to take him to the mountain to be, to be killed and sacrificed. And I can't help but think as I think about that story, as Isaac was laying on the, on the altar and his father raised the knife and he hears the bleeding of the, of the ram over in the bushes. What a, what a sound that must have been, right? And, and trying to put myself in the position of Isaac as you see this, this ram giving his, his, his life in, in his place. It must have just been a tremendous, tremendous um, thing to behold. And yet that's what we're doing as we participate in the Lord's Supper. We're, we're remembering that Jesus was our substitute. He took our place. And, um, and that, that symbolizes our participation. The next thing is, is spiritual nourishment. This is a bad thing about writing on the board. You got to know how to spell. No. Just as, just as physical food, when we ingest it, it nourishes our body. Participation in the Lord's Supper nourishes us spiritually. It's it's our souls are symbolically nourished. Who had John 6, 47 through 58? So Jesus takes his hearers, those that were there listening to him that day, he reminds them of their forefathers who, who, who ate the manna that, that came, that fell from heaven. That was their sustenance. It kept them going, and um, they, they ate it. Jesus compares himself symbolically to the manna that fell. And the Jews that were there that day were very confused. In verse 42, she read, and they began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're thinking literally that Jesus is saying, Eat my flesh. 
and yet he's speaking symbolically. And the real explanation, I think, comes in verse, do you still have that, Audrey? Mm -hmm. Verse 56, read that again, please. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Okay, so there's this relationship that Jesus is speaking about. This, this feeding upon his flesh is our abiding in him. He, we abide in him, he abides in us. And so there's this close relationship. And what Jesus is saying is when you abide in me, when you eat my flesh, you take me into your life. I become a part of your life. You trust me. You make every decision of your life uh, thinking about, about me. You base your life decisions upon me. And so the Lord's Supper is, is a reminder that way. The other thing that it affirms is the unity of the believers. Who had 1 Corinthians 10, 5, 15 through 17? I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Okay. Read verse 16 again. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Okay. I think yours used the word participation. Mine says sharing. My, my translation says sharing. Grudem says that the word there is, is actually the, the, the same word that we use when we think about the relationships in the church, koinonia. It's this intertwining of, of a relationship. It's this sharing that goes on, the, to have something in common. And, and so Jesus is, or, or Paul here is saying that as we participate in the Lord's Supper, we come together and share. We become intertwined with one another. We have unity among the believers because we are one body. The thing that unites us is Christ. You know, we come together and meet here, and it's not because we, we all live kind of close in the same area. It's not because, you know, we have the same social economic status. It's, and it's not because of our college football team. We don't, you know, David and Linda will never agree on their, their college football team. That's not what binds us together, right? What, what unites us is our relationship to Christ. And the Lord's Supper helps to remind us of that. Are you trying to get me to pull for text? <laughs> It'll never happen. Okay. That's not what binds us. All right. <laughs> And then there are, are a few other things that the Lord's Supper affirms, and, and um, one is that Christ loves us individually. You know, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, uh, we're, we're there to, as a part of a, of a larger group. But one of the most poignant observances of the Lord's Supper that I ever had was uh, at my dad's church, and we actually got up from our seats and went down, and, and they were handing out the elements. And you went up to a person and and the person who was handing out the elements, and they said, this is Jesus' body which is given for you. It was very personal. It was one-on-one. -on -one. And so the Lord's Supper is a reminder that Jesus loves me. He loves you individually. It also uh, reaffirms the blessings of salvation, that we have fellowship with the king. We have fellowship with the king of kings. And then again, we think back to that future uh, banquet that we will celebrate in eternity. 
The other thing that it affirms is our faith in Christ. As we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are continually saying, I need you. I trust you. And we're, we're, so we're demonstrating our dependence on Christ. So how is Christ presented? How is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? This is where the lesson got a little difficult for me um, because he, he goes on to present some other thoughts or, or ways that people look at the Lord's Supper. And I'm not ultra familiar with these, but he starts with the Roman Catholic view. Now, the Catholics have, as I understand, seven sacraments. And so Protestants generally have shied away from using the word sacraments because of the way the Catholics apply that word. Um, the Roman Catholic Church would say there are, are these sacraments like baptism, confession, confirmation, marriage, and in these, as I understand it, grace is actually transmitted. There's salvation that's occurring when you participate in these things. The that's communion... I'm sorry? That's what they contend. That's what they believe, correct. The Roman Catholic Church. So there are seven of them. Communion is one of the seven. They, in fact, they call it the Eucharist. Now, this is, again, where it gets confusing to me because Eucharist is another word for communion. So that's the way they would use that word. And yet it's also, the Catholics believe that the, the bread and the body actually become literally the body and blood of Christ. And it's transubstantiated, transubstantiation. And so as the priest <coughs> takes, takes the bread, he would, he would say the words, this is my body, and he would elevate the bread, and it was, is looked upon and adored, and in that moment, it becomes the body of Christ. They say. They believe. And then by participating in the Lord's Supper, grace is actually imparted to an individual. So every time Mass is celebrated, Christ's sacrifice occurs again. So obviously, you know, the problem with that view is that it fails to recognize the symbolism, number one. And number two, it fails to recognize that Jesus' death once and for all paid for sin. It doesn't have to be a, a continual uh, sacrifice for sin. They, you know, the, they would fail to recognize the symbolism, and, and Grudem used a couple of examples. You know, Jesus was, as he was talking uh, at various times, he said, one time he said, I am the true vine. I am the door. Now, people who were hearing him, and as we read scripture today, we don't, literally think Jesus meant he was a vine. We don't literally think he meant he was a door. He was using uh, symbols to indicate how he functioned. Grudem even says that as Jesus was holding the cup that night and he said uh, this is um, he said this cup is the new covenant the disciples weren't literally thinking this the cup itself was the covenant. It was what it, what it represented. Who had uh, Hebrews 9.28? So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Okay. So Christ's death, one time, paid for all the sins. Mass doesn't have to occur over and over again for grace to be imparted. Who had John 19, 29, and 30? I do. 
All right. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read 28. Okay. Well, um, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Okay. Jesus' one-time sacrifice accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished for salvation. There's no other work. There's no other sacrament. There's no other grace that needs to be imparted. Jesus' one-time death finished. The work was finished. Grudem then goes on to talk about the Lutheran view. Uh, Martin Luther differed. He, he, he seemed to understand that there were some issues or problems with the way that the Roman Catholics looked at. He, he, he felt there was a problem with the literal body and, and blood of Jesus being in the, in the bread and the wine. And so he he came up, he felt like there still needed to be some literal interpretation. So he came up with a, uh, a, a belief that Christ is present in, with, and under the bread of the Lord's Supper. Okay? And Grudem gives an example like, he uses the example of a sponge. So if you took a sponge and you dipped it in the water, there's water in the sponge. The water is not the sponge. The sponge is not the water. But if you were to look at it, it would all be one thing together there. And so that's kind of how Grudem describes Luther's view of in, with, and under. Somehow Jesus becomes in, with, and under the bread and the, the juice that we, that we drink. The problem that Grudem points out is, um, you know, this... He makes the words of Jesus mean this accompanies my body. Not this is my body, but this accompanies my body because the, the, his, his, his body is in, with, and under these elements. So the rest of Protestantism is kind of influenced by John Calvin. And he said that the bread and the wine do not change. They don't become the body and blood of Christ. And they don't somehow contain, you know, in this mystical way, they don't contain the body and blood of Christ, but they are truly symbolic. They, they are a visible sign of a fact that Christ himself is truly present. Now, I felt like as I was reading through this that there needed to still be some distinction made between what Calvin believed maybe and what, what we would say we be, would believe today. He seems to be implying that there's some mystical presence of Christ in observance of the Lord's Supper. What I think you and I would say we believe is that where two or more are gathered in Christ's name, he is present. He's promised to be there with us. So Christ's presence, when we gather to worship, he's with us. The Holy Spirit resides in each one of us as believers. So wherever we are, wherever we go, Christ is present. So when we, we gather together, certainly the presence of Christ exists as we um, celebrate the Lord's Supper. And yet, and Grudem warns us, yet we must not say that Christ is present apart from our personal faith. So it's through our own faith that Jesus is present, not in some mystical representation of the, of the bread and the wine. So who should participate in the Lord's Supper? Who can participate? Well, participation in the Lord's Supper should be reserved to believers because it's a sign of being a believer. 
and of ongoing faith in the death of Jesus Christ. Paul warns those who eat or drink in an unworthy manner. Who had 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 30? I do. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood and the body of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Okay. So he speaks to of participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. How might that be manifested? How could we observe the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? Unconfessed or, or ongoing sin in the life of a, of a believer would to participate in the Lord's Supper, that would be unworthy. Uh, to treat the Lord's Supper as some ritual, some ritualistic experience would be an unworthy manner. Would be a disunity with the body. Exactly. If, if we had some ongoing difference with someone else in the body or to, to be bitter or angry toward a brother or sister in Christ, that would be observing the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So an, another qualification for participating in the Lord's Supper is self-examination. We should be very methodical. We should be thoughtful. Uh, it, it should be a time of reverence where we are introspective and look into our own lives and examine, is there unconfessed sin? Is there ongoing sin that I need to, to repent of? Uh, am I bitter or angry toward a, a brother? And, and take care of those things before we participate in, in the Lord's Supper. So we should check for our unworthiness, for bad attitudes and selfishness, disunity in the body and unconfessed sin. And make sure that our motives are correct. We want to make sure that we have unity with the body of Christ and, and make sure that our relationships honor the character of the Lord. Uh, the, the next question he asks is, who should administer the Lord's Supper? And Grudem says that Scripture gives no explicit teaching on this question, and I, I think I would agree with him. I don't, I don't know of any Scripture that says who should administer the Lord's Supper. But I think as we think about the things that we've talked about tonight and how the, the Lord's Supper is observed, especially as we think about the unity of the body, the Lord's Supper is to be, it was given to the church, uh, as a body of believers, we gather together to observe the Lord's Supper. So uh, as the church gathers, the church has selected leadership that, that administers the other worship services that, that we attend. And so it seems logical to me that, that we would expect that those church leaders that the church has selected would, would administer the Lord's Supper. And finally, he asked, how often should the Lord's Supper be celebrated? And again, Scripture doesn't say. Um, Paul or, or Jesus said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. So he didn't specify a certain time. And at Crabapple, we generally try to observe the Lord's Supper about four times a year, once a quarter. That doesn't mean we couldn't have a, an, an observance more often than that. Or uh, We try to, to be very careful not to do it so often that it becomes rote or ritual. Uh, we want it to, to stay fresh, and we've tried to observe it in, in a number of different ways to, to keep it fresh, and, and yet maintain the integrity of, of what's happening there. Actually, so we do it a little more often. Do we? We do it about twice a quarter. Okay. Every six weeks or so. And Grudem kind of concludes by saying, if the Lord's Supper is planned and explained and carried out in such a way that it is a time of self-examination, confession, thanksgiving, and praise, then it does not seem to be that celebrating it once a week would be too often and certainly could be observed that frequently for edification. 
So there's no set time frame, but as long as it's done with the right purposes and the right motives, then uh, it can be observed as, as, as needed and as healthy and as edifying for the body. It's, it's always interesting how God works, and I've been, and I know many of you are, have been keeping up with the Bible readings, and last week we, we, we've been in Exodus, and we were on the Passover, I think on, on Friday, and um, Jesus instituted the, the Lord's Supper as he was celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And I just thought the, um, I forgot the name of this book, the book that, For the Love of God, mm-hmm. by Carson. Yeah. So I got this out of the For the Love of God as, as I was reading our, our daily Bible reading on Friday. And he concluded with this. I thought it would be good to conclude tonight. He says, a millennium and a half later, so he's talking about the Passover, a millennium and a half later, Paul would remind believers in Corinth that Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us, inaugurating a new covenant. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and wine and instituted a new commemorative rite. And this too took place on the festival of Passover, as if this new rite connects the old with that to which it points, the death of Christ. The calendar changed again. A new and climactic redemption had been achieved. God still passes over those who are secured by the blood. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this time where we can gather. Father, we are so grateful for the blood of Christ that was shed and covers us. Father, we would be desperate and lost without it. Father, we worship you because of what you've done. We thank you that you looked down upon us and you chose us for salvation, that you reached down and you gave us new life. We pray that we would live it in a worthy manner. We pray that we would be your instruments in this world to share the gospel with those around us. Father, I thank you for these that have gathered here tonight, and I pray that you would watch over them. I pray that you would use them, and I pray that they would glorify you. Christ's name we pray. Amen. What's next week? Gifts, gifts of the Spirit? Yeah. Speaking in tongues. <laughs> you speak some tongues at you. I'll, I'll, I'll have the healings. You want to do the healings? No, I'm going to do a tongues episode.